Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and non-fiction writer. This week on the pod, we start out with the Paris Pages, a segment that brings you our takes and takeaways about the city we love. Today, we talk about the most romantic places in Paris and the most overrated. Then it's time for the love story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today, we'll be diving deeper into Hemingway month with our sexy cliff notes on the bullfight and booze-based story in The Sun Also Rises. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Marry, Fuck, Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters or entities from our main love story. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. Okay, so um, this week, as you do, scrolling through Facebook, I got advertised um, an article about um, the sort of 10 most romantic things to do in Paris, uh, the most romantic city in the entire world. Um, If you're turned on by the smell of urine. (laughs) (laughs) That is a, a very good point, Rachel. Um, because it got me, it got me questioning, um, you know, is Paris a romantic city? That was my first question. It was like, you know, I mean, it's got this huge reputation and then I, I Googled it and I was like, you know, more things in there. Just this copy, which I admit sometimes I am behind writing. (laughs) Um, Look, we have day jobs, people. (laughs) Thank you for sending your money. Keep sending it. I don't, I have generational wealth. Don't worry about me. (laughs) In, in every article, it will just, about romantic things to do in Paris, Paris will be dropped as, this is the most romantic city in the world, this is the, the capital of love, this is the capital of romance, etc., etc. Um, is it a romantic city? Well, I feel like I'm betraying the podcast if I say no. <laughs> <laughs> and a person, like, it is weird just living here because it's like asking me if Milwaukee's a romantic city or New York or Providence, like these places that I've lived are romantic cities. And it's like, I don't, sometimes they were. Most of the time it was also like I had to go to my bank and like I really had to pee on the metro. <laughs> like, <laughs> that smell wasn't me, you guys. It wasn't. <laughs> It's you know what it is weird to live in a city that is a signifier for romance, right? Of course, we've talked about some other episodes of the podcast. Paris is beautiful, but in a weird way, it's a lot of pressure to live in a city that is the city of love. Is love you know synonymous with beauty? Is it synonymous with iconicism? Is it synonymous with old? Because all those things apply to Paris, but actually, being a city of love 
depends upon the people who are in love in that city. Yeah, I think so much. I'm going to make an analogy now. I think it's like dating the hero of romantic comedies. You know, it's like Gene Kelly and his, what, seven wives? Mm -hmm. Because, of course, it's so easy to fall in love with him because you're like, he's so romantic. And it's like, no, you know the reputation. Now what's this going to be like for you? Is he gonna? Is he gonna sing you "Good Morning" on a street lamp? Is he gonna? Are, are you his Debbie Reynolds? I don't think so. <laughs> I am. Sorry. That's great. I, you're, you're sort of talking about the kind of the fundamental infidelity of Paris. With like the number of times that I've been held up on the train by the Louvre, by like with wedding pictures, with people like you know, uh, even people making out. Now I might just be getting bitter though. I'm just like move. <laughs> there have been so many making out couples lately. Um, one time I was reading in the Tuileries and a couple just started having sex on the bench next. What? Yeah, her her on top, full clothes on. Um, and I was just like, this is, now I have to leave. <laughs> it's not romantic, is it? It wasn't romantic. It was not sexy. It's intense. Yes. <laughs> I actually, talking of, sorry, so I realize what I'm about to say here. Talking of which, I know some people who actually had sex in a tent in the Tuileries. And you said intense. I, I think. <laughs> you know, because nobody would have caught that. Because <laughs> in our accent, it doesn't sound. Don't you fucking cut this. This has to remain. This is called a cultural artifact. <laughs> Why would you set up a tent in the Tuileries? Gross. You'd be on a bench. Too much forethought. If you want to have public sex, have public sex. Yeah, have spontaneous public sex. Be a man. Wait, what? <laughs> okay, so I just want to ask, what do you imagine um, are the kind of like, the things which come up in these most romantic things to do in Paris? You know, they might not be your most romantic things to do in Paris, but what do you imagine comes up in them quite a lot? Putting the lock on the bridge. Yeah. Going to the top of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. Beautiful restaurants. Yeah. Making out along the sand, which isn't bad. That actually, that one's actually good. Yeah. Depending, depending. Oh, that's what um, I would say, yeah, like beautiful yeah. walks. Um, uh, oh, gardens, right? Like the Luxembourg Gardens. Yeah. Yeah. Weirdly, going to the uh, that wall in Montmartre is uh, is oh, a really I can't big that one. Think about that. Absolutely, people <laughs> love that wall. Yeah. No pun intended. Yeah. No idea what there's. So there's a wall. I always love that wall. A pun. Because it's a wall that has love on it in like a billion different languages. Oh, I thought you meant the wall where it's the guy coming out of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I will save a special affection for that wall because Amarinha is on the wall. And so I I just oh. feel a little bit like, thank you. Whoever, whoever the Ethiopian was on this planning committee, thank you for figuring out how to spell this out. Yeah, this this is a this is the wall in Montmartre, which has um, I love you written in I don't know how many languages on it, Like, which is apparently one of, it, it gets number two in a lot of lists number one in some um you know there's also there's What's the kind of, well i mean there are lots of different lists i mean number one oh, there's not one list that one we're in, the, in the in the lonely planet list that i'm looking at was actually go up the eiffel tower so uh you got it straight off the bat there that's the, the least romantic thing i can imagine it costs a fortune let's go there up are stairs. so many tourists or you wait for the elevator for hours when was the last time you went up the eiffel tower i've never been up the eiffel tower <laughs> You guys, I, I'm sorry. My friends just reacted as like as though like I were the 15 year old who said I'm I've never had sex no, in the room. No, I'm sorry. You spoke about it so definitively. You're like this is what happens, and then for you to be like, oh, I've never been up it. That's how oh, I got the joke. You spoke with complete authority, as if you were Eiffel Tower warden. 
quick defense of the Eiffel Tower, though. I mean, it's been a while since I went up it. I mean, we're talking 10 years. Um, Sometimes people just throw things off it and then you get stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I do groceries. Le divorce, she throws their Hermes bag. Uh, <laughs> uh, you get a gun in Moulin Rouge. You just got to catch it right because it, ba- it bings <laughs> off. Can we talk about Moulin Rouge for approximately no. 17 hours? No. <laughs> Chris was saying. Um. <laughs> You're done. Quick defense of the Eiffel Tower. I I liked it more than you know, I think it's a better experience than um you would think. There you go. It's not just a tall building. It's the Eiffel Tower. It's good. Um, it's good. That's yeah. You know, that's, that's my defense. It's that's, not good. I agree with you. It's not good. Um. So anyway, so I was going to say, if 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 we were trying to come up with one of these lists and having lived here for how however long, um, what would we say are the most romantic things to do in Paris? This, advice to our listeners picnic in Bouchamel like at the like on not at the top of a hill you don't want to do it for the view you want to be there for like the the moment and the food Bouchamel is a park in the 19th arrondissement of Paris uh, it used to be a garbage dump I believe but they, um... well you just ruined it but that's okay <laughs> don't go there don't go there people that's my part it, it, it is beautiful it's it's a lovely park I do love that park and actually uh, kind of jumping off that I think so I have two suggestions one of which is more uh, is more general which is that I think Paris in being such a famous city especially a famous city for love the most romantic thing you can do in Paris is to find your private niche or find kind mm. of a secluded corner, right? There's something to me at least so romantic and so wonderful about being with your person in the midst of all these people who are maybe in love or maybe performing love and just the two of you. And it could be like, you know, that bar in your neighborhood that everyone goes to, but you have your table. It could be the Boutromont mm. and you don't go to the popular place. But when I think about the most romantic dates I've been on, it really has been we're in a really busy neighborhood, we're in a really popular place, mm. and we are just the two of us in this quiet corner. And to yeah. find quiet, to find tranquility in Paris, or really maybe in any big city, but definitely Paris is, to me, the most romantic. Yeah, well, I would go further than that, and I would actually say, I think, stay in, get a bottle of wine or champagne and maybe some strawberries and stay in your apartment or hotel room. I did think about that actually, but I was like, no, maybe that's cheating. I should kind of try to go. Sing the strawberries. Where do we get the idea that they're a sexy fruit, that the seeds get in your teeth, then you're just sitting there like, that's an excellent point. That's so gross. Don't do that. Don't do that. No. Um, No The wine, champagne, sex, yeah. I also think Paris, good place for experimentation. Best scene in the Royal Tenenbaums, like one second clip, is Margot Tenenbaums' many marriages. Like kissing a woman very sexily, like through an open window with the the, uh, reflection of the Eiffel Tower on it. Look. It feels like another world. It isn't. We have Instagram. We have whatever you kids are up to these days, TikToking your stuff. But the... (laughs) the, Sorry, we're 84 years old. I don't know know if we ever covered that in this podcast. This is a jury. We're all in a nursing home. They told us, like, you know, amuse yourself. So here we are. I don't know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Go on, Rachel. But it feels... I think that it feels just foreign enough that you can experiment in certain ways. Your suggestion then is of romantic things to do in Paris is experiment. Yeah, use it as a place of experimentation. There are lots of sex clubs, swingers clubs. You know, there's Tinder here, just as in the States. There's Grinder here. So, you know, I think it's a good place that, as I said, it feels foreign enough that it's sexy, but also familiar enough and, you know, that, that it can still be safe. 
And I think also my experience dating French people is that it's an interesting mix of there are standards, there are rules, but also there's a lot of liberty. And what I mean by that is that when I first started, like when I first came here and I was dating people. You would not believe the penises I've seen. (laughs) And we're going to go through one by one. (laughs) My PowerPoint presentation will be in the show notes. Please look out for it. I worked real fucking hard on that. You weren't the only one. (laughs) But I think... But one thing that I remember, I remember kissing someone <laughs> once, once upon a time. Um, and I remember that he was really upset that we weren't immediately boyfriend and girlfriend. And so I was like, oh, that's a weird rule that exists in dating. There are such weird, weird oh, rules about monogamy here. Yeah. There's a lot of leeway and a lot of like kind of laxitude that doesn't exist in my experience in the American dating scene. So I bring that up to say that it's interesting to me that it's not just like a free for all. Like if if you are, I don't know if you're someone who's. I don't know, you have your hangups, you're not you're not to- totally confident, whatever. There are certain parameters, but then there's a lot of freedom within those parameters. So take advantage of that. I think that's not always the case. And I think enjoy learning new codes. It's like the American thing, which is so outdated now, and I think was never actually great advice in the first place of, you know, sleep with the guy on the third date. Mm-hmm. It's it, That's very much not been my experience here, but that just might be me. Yeah. Um, but it's like, it, it's, it's, I, I, I just don't think that's, true anymore for most people a lot of people or at least the people in our circles yeah because the physical act of love keep going (laughs) i just said the physical act of love somebody else has to talk now (laughs) i also thought uh go to a protest i think that's a pretty romantic thing to do do you know someone who used to be friends with me met her partner at a protest i was at a protest once with a guy i had a crush with with a guy I had a crush on. We crushed. Yeah, we crushed. And um, some of the protesters passing by, it was a group of youths, even youthier than us. And the guy lifted up my skirt. And the guy I was with just turned bright pink and, like, looked away. And I was like, I don't want him to fight those guys because he'll die. Like, But I want him to be like, are you okay? Is that not? So it is a good um, crucible. In which to, like, determine whether – because after that, I was just like, no, not that I need to be protected or anything. But, like, it really was just like, are you okay? That must have been really upsetting, like, to check in on feelings instead of just being like, that didn't happen. So protests, yeah, romantic, maybe not in the way you thought. And like concerts – follow me – Concerts, you know that you have the same musical interests. Protests, you know you have the same political interests, and that's important. And what's more important than that? And talking of concerts, I would say uh, if you can be here on Fête de la Musique, that's uh, a pretty uh, pretty romantic time to be here as well. Oh, that day makes me really murdery. Wow, 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 wow. No. Too much noise. You can't choose. You can't choose what music you're hearing. It's gross. It's busy. Fête de la Musique, just to explain, is a day in the middle of summer when Paris lifts all of its noise laws and people are allowed to perform music on the street. So you have just bands performing on every sort of other street corner. I spend that day locked in my closet. Yeah, no, it's sometimes they're bad and it's just not a good day, I would say. It is not a good day. I love Fetula music. It's fantastic. Like it's this, it's that kind of like fiesta atmosphere which descends on the city. Do you know what? This is a good way for me to know Pamplona is not for me because, because if you <laughs> yeah, like Fetula music and I do not, then bulls being added is not going to help my experience <laughs> of an event. This is so helpful. I don't have to pay the ticket for Spain. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. Wow. So to wrap up. Uh, so I have one if to wrap up. To wrap up, yeah. Hemingway, Hemingway. Um, so what's the least romantic aspect of Paris? Ooh. Parisians. <laughs> Bureaucracy. 
Oh yeah, bureaucracy is pretty unromantic. Who used to work in bureaucracy? Uh, winner, winner, winner. And now it's time for the love story, or as we like to think of it, sexy cliff notes. So (laughs) this week, we're going to be talking about The Sun Also Rises. Before we get into anything, I want to read a little summary of this book for you guys that uh, I loved as a teenager on a very old website called Book a Minute, where they summarize the classics in less than a minute, When for when the cliff notes are just too long. So here, here's what they had to say about The Sun Also Rises. Stock Hemingway narrating character. It was in Europe after the war. We were depressed. We drank a lot. We were still depressed. And, <laughs> and it's perfect. That really does get to the heart of it. Nothing was missed in that description. <laughs> we'll dive into this uh, a little bit more I think they later did it on. I think we can just go. <laughs> Thank you. Podcast over. <laughs> um. Yeah, so before we dive into anything else, um, I do want to say that just like Nancy Mitford, you never have to wonder who Hemingway likes and particularly which group slash groups of people (laughs) he likes and more importantly, who he hates. This book is very anti-Semitic. Barry Gross was discussing this uh, in... I don't know what, but he wrote that uh, Hemingway never lets the reader forget that Cohn is a Jew, not an unattractive character who happens to be a Jew, but a character who is unattractive because he is a Jew. And there are also many, many um, derogatory terms used about Jewish people in the course of this book. Uh, There are many instances of racism, and there are many instances of uh, strong bias against against queer people uh, as well. So... Before we get into this, we just wanted to uh, to warn potential readers of the book. If you haven't read it, the, these things uh, do run throughout it, and you know we're not going to pretend like they didn't exist. Uh, but uh, and we will be discussing them throughout the book discussion. So, with that said, uh, before we dive into the actual. Uh, discussion of the plot and the production and reception of the book. What were your experiences with Sun Also Rises? I know I've read it once before I read it for this episode, and I remembered not a bit of it. I kept I kept thinking, I know I thought I read and I only started to catch glimpses of a memory when I got to the very end around bullfighting. So I think that and reading it this time around, I'm not surprised. Because as I was telling Chris earlier, I do feel like until they get to the fishing trip, the book is a lot, you know, it's Jake, the main character, walking, eating, going to work for a few hours a day, what a life, what a time, drinking, walking. There is a part where it's like, oh, it's it's literally running commentary. Um, And then things really start, the story begins, it starts to really coalesce around that big fishing trip. So, and that's not halfway through the book, but it is a big chunk of the book before that happens. So I'm... Not surprised that as a high schooler, I didn't retain a lot of that. That's interesting. I only like the first part, but we'll get into that later. Uh, and that is because, as I said on last week's episode about Mouveau Feast, this was a book that I had with me on my first visit to Paris as an itty-bitty teenager with a plastic brain. Um, so I was only interested in the <laughs> Paris stuff uh, and any implied sex. So, <laughs> Chris. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this book 
it's probably not too big a statement to say that it's the sort of the thing which got me into literature effectively um and and yeah like also kind of similar to you Rachel like what I remembered from it like the first so I've probably read it uh four or five times now um and what I remembered from it from the first time that I read it was that I was just I loved all of the partying and all of the good times that they were having and the fact that it's actually an incredibly depressing book just totally went over my head you should have read the the book a minute. It would have helped you understand the themes. <laughs> but it's it is interesting. I'm so I, you know I think I would have read it when I was about seventeen years old, like first time round. And and yeah, I was just I was so captivated by the fact that there was somebody kind of like who who seemed to be so attuned to all of these like good things in life, which is there's a lot of that in this book as well there are a lot of great meals there's a lot of great descriptions of landscapes of journeys um and uh, i mean I, I don't know if i would say of friendship i think that would be pushing it a little bit of knowing people <laughs> in both biblical and non-biblical sense drinking frequently with the same people is friendship in this book drinking buddies but yeah of experience and it is interesting what like and while having like reread it and thinking go oh, how stupid was I when I was 17? I think it is interesting that nevertheless, the the kind of the myth that came out of this book, and I mean, I know it comes out of reality and also a movable feast, but part of it is about the glamorization of the 1920s, um, like which people today still look look at, uh, look on with these sort of like real glassy eyes. Oh, I wish I'd been there in Paris at that time. I wish I'd been hanging out with Hemingway and all those people. And we're actually going to take a look at this next week in Midnight in Paris episode. Yeah, um, it, it, but it's it's funny because actually when you when you read it again and it you know I, I think probably the second time I clocked on, but. I think it's only this time that I've been reading it when I've just been hit by just like how hopeless the whole thing is and sad. Um, so it's an interesting change of relationship. I still think it's a terrific book, though. Yeah. Well, the first time I read it, I couldn't figure out why Jake and Brett couldn't be together. So, you know, we all get there in our own time. <laughs> Um, so a little bit about uh, the background of this book. We talked a lot about Hemingway's life last week. And Hen Hemingway began this novel on his 26th birthday. Ugh. Before this, he'd had two books out already, but they were uh, short stories, or rather the first book was three stories and 10 poems uh, in a print run of 300 copies, which did make me feel good. <laughs> and then a book of short stories called In Our Time, which uh, had a print run of only 170 copies. So... Uh, and then Had Hadley, as we know, lost the beginning of another novel that he was working on uh, in that train station. So uh, Hemingway begins this July. He's, you know, ready for a new beginning. And he sends a couple chapters to his editor at Scribner, Maxwell Perkins. And he originally had this conceived very differently from how it turned out. He said, this is a novel about a lady. Her name is Lady Ashley. And when the story begins, she's living in Paris and it is spring. There should be a good setting for a romantic but highly moral story. As everyone knows, Paris is a very romantic place. Spring in Paris is a very happy and romantic time. Autumn in Paris, although very beautiful, might give a note of sadness or melancholy that we shall try to keep out of this story. I feel Hemingway knows how to sell a book. But... <laughs> what a pitch. <laughs> and Perkins said, I want a million copies. 
Um, so Gertrude Stein was a little, little, little bit annoyed later on that uh, he didn't give her credit for teaching him about bullfighting because she said he learned about bullfighting from me. But apparently around this time, he was becoming more and more obsessed with bullfighting. And uh, that does make its way into the story, as we'll talk about. He, there were many working titles for this. Fiesta was one of them. It was published and still is published, I believe, in the UK as Fiesta. I thought it was published in the States as Fiesta. No. I've never heard of Fiesta as a concept or a book. I had a like a, a copy from the 60s, a Cuban copy that was called Fiesta that I gave to an ex-boyfriend. I want it back, Billy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, that was the only time I'd, I'd seen that. Yeah, the copy that I've got, it's called Fiesta, The Sun Also Rises. And what edition is that, American or British? Um, it's a British edition. Oh, okay. So uh, apparently the, the Brits don't know. <laughs> what to what to do? Um, at one point, it was called the Lost Generation. At one point, it was called Two Lie Together. And apparently, at one point, he was considering this as a title. Although I'm, I've got to think he was going to abbreviate it. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. <laughs> Honestly, his editor earned every single yeah. penny. Really. Well done, Maxwell Perkins. Yes. Um, okay, but so as it turns out. I need you guys to brace yourselves because there are a lot of boring white men names mm -hmm. and they're easily confusable. Um, to me, the first time I read this, I was like, how many 30-something white men are in this book? It could be anywhere between four and eight. <laughs> Jake, Robert, Mike, come on. These are all the same name. Um, okay, so he wasn't going to write it in the first person originally, but it did turn out to be a first person novel about... Jake Barnes, a newspaper, an American newspaper correspondent working in France who was wounded in the war in an unspecified way that makes him not able to have sex. Now, he states explicitly at one point that he's not impotent, but he can't have sex, whatever that means. Mo definitely penetrative sex is what it means. Um, and of course, this speaks to the impotence of a generation. Oh, oh, applause. Okay, he's in love with Lady Brett Ash. <laughs> I think we were a bit facetious about that. It's quite a good metaphor. <laughs> it's a great metaphor. It's just a little obvious. <laughs> and also, he got there first. If it was my metaphor, yeah. I'd be defending it to the death. <laughs> so, yeah, it was good job, Hemingway. <laughs> yeah, and he's in love with Lady Brett Ashley, who is a twice-divorced English Circe, uh, <laughs> who is always looking for someone new, but loves Jake. Uh, they express their love for each other many times, verbally, possibly physically, but not in that way. Anyway, the first part, Jake's in Paris. He's friends, big air quotes, with Robert Cohen, who is another American, uh, generationally wealthy Jewish man who is kind of bullied by everybody in his life from his girlfriend to Jake doesn't really outright bully him at this point, but he definitely looks down on him. Throughout, he's described as like, sort of not an asshole, but just somehow unlikable. And he never really does anything which is particularly unlikable. Right. It, that That's it. I mean, it, it really is what the critic I quoted earlier said, which is that you're supposed to infer that he's unlikable because of the way that Hemingway talks about his Judaism. Absolutely. It's really messed up. Because it's the only thing that separates him from the others or differentiates him. And if he's the only one who's super annoying, 
Well, I will say that he does have this strange old-fashioned streak that doesn't match up with those around him. So, like, he gets into fights and then, like, tries to shake hands. I know, but I feel like that's also coded Judaism for Hemingway. It's like, oh, these old ancient wisdom people who kind of believe in these Talmudic morals. I don't, I, I, to me, it does feel that could be, but I also feel like it, it's really necessary to have a foil in there mm-hmm. to show, you know, the new generation. And it was a, an easy target. But uh, he basically has these mores that don't apply to a new world. Um, and yeah, Jake is kind of, you know, pottering around Paris in the first part. He takes this prostitute Georgette out to dinner. She's really afraid he's Flemish for some reason. Um, he keeps running into Brett, who's going around with this Greek-American questionable count. I love the count. <laughs> the count is great. He's the hero of this book for me. <laughs> <laughs> he pays for everything, the Count. Uh, Did his name also Count Hippopotamus or something? It's like, it's, it's like Pippi Moment. It's, it's, it's such a... I think that might be a microaggression. Yeah, let's, let's not go anti-Greek. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm saying I think it is supposed to be a, a oh, microaggression from the part of Hemingway. Yeah, he does have a very, uh, I don't even want to say stereotypically Greek name. It it's like it's a total fake Greek. Yeah, the- caricature of a, of a Greek name. Um, and... You know, Brett keeps bringing him around Jake, uh, but he keeps paying for things, and he's kind of just a lovely guy. Second part, Bill from New York comes. Uh, he's a childhood friend of Jake's, and Brett's fiance, Mike Campbell from Scotland, uh, come down to. Everybody's planning to go off to the fiesta um, when it turns out that Robert and Brett have had an affair. Oh, and so this is shocking to everybody who are just like, Brett will stop at nothing. Can you even imagine? Um, Jake and Bill go to meet Robert. Uh, so take a second to parse that and remember who each of those bland white men names belongs to. Um, at Bayonne to go fishing near Pamplona. But Robert decides that he wants to wait for Brett and Mike to arrive because he apparently is being a little bit um, masochistic. Everyone hates Robert and is super mean to him. I wrote, they watch bullfights. So maybe Chris would like to elaborate on the bullfights a little bit more <laughs> in this book. Well, the, the They watch bullfights, what, like, uh, you mean after? Pamplona? Yeah, they're in Pamplona. Okay, I mean, I feel like uh, I mean, quite a lot happens before they watch bullfights, right? Like, I I wrote everyone hates Robert. Super mean. Because <laughs> <laughs> basically, what happens is, if I remember correctly, Bill and Jake go fishing. We hear all about that. In the meantime, Robert goes to San Sebastian, supposedly because he tells right. Like, so it basically, is just that it's fishing here. And Robert being sad and waiting in San Sebastian for Mike and uh, Lady Brett. Yeah, and then they all reunite in Pamplona. In Pamplona, exactly. Yes. Yeah, and they go to Pamplona, which... So um, every year in Pamplona, there is a festival called uh, San Fermin, or San Fermin, um, which is... I think it's a seven or uh, seven or eight day festival, uh, and it's the one which is famous for the running of the bulls, where they you know every morning they run the bulls through the streets of the town, um, and in the evening these bulls go and uh, fight in the bull ring. 
Um, and and you you know you can get in the streets with the bulls, um, and it's an incredibly dangerous thing to do. As you know, because as I know, because I've actually, I have personally been to uh, the Pamplona Festival three times, um, and the third time I went with a friend who got in the streets with the bulls and was quite horrifically gored, and I had a whole like, adventure. In I mean, yeah, he was fine. Um, just to drop the tension from that I mean so as I said that was a whole like strange adventure I was um, researching the reason that I went was because I had this idea that I might want to try and write a book about uh, bullfighting cultures around the world not just the Spanish one and that but that was one of the cultures that I wanted to uh, write about turns out that bullfighting is not that commercial a subject in (laughs) the modern age who knew um yeah, and so, but after the running of the bulls, there are... Um, after the running of the bulls, it's important to, like, really have an idea of what San Famine is like, which is just this place, you know, when the when the festival begins, it's like, sort of time shuts off, almost, and, like, everything is dedicated towards partying. There are lots of old traditions going on, but these days it's also been infiltrated by a lot of people from the outside, like tourists who've come largely actually because of Hemingway. Um, and You always ruin the thing you love. <laughs> Hemingway, Papa would have been the first to agree. <laughs> but it's it's literally, it's non-stop drinking, effectively. Non-stop drinking, non-stop partying. The, what, what's fascinating is that the streets are constantly being hosed down. Everybody is wearing... Uh, the uniform of the fiesta, which is white with a red uh, neckerchief and a red sash around your belt. Um, so everybody sort of looks the same and you're, it, it's, as I say, it's kind of creating this other space in which things which wouldn't usually be permitted are, are permitted. And then including that, as with a lot of uh, big fiestas in Spain, yeah, you have the um, the bullfights actually in the evening or in the afternoon um i don't know how much you want me to go into the details of what a bullfight is or if you know what if that interests you first of all we'll link to chris's article in the show notes second of all just read the book it's super short you'll be fine you'll read in a couple hours absolutely um and you can skip the full fighting parts if you don't want to which not gonna lie uh maybe i should lie (laughs) my girl started looking at me like this was your job (laughs) basically both times the matador cuts off the ear of the bull and gives it to Brett. Well, no, hold on, wait. The the you. I know I skipped not, over. But it's a you know it completely you know misses the point of like what you do in a bullfight. He doesn't cut the ear off the bull. Um, okay, so if, you better describe this. <laughs> if you so a bullfight is, it's important not to consider them as a form of sport. It's effectively somewhere in between a religious ritual. Uh, well, it, it, it's like it's like a religious ritual and a spectacle, or a, a piece of theatre or circus. And a lot of people who are passionate about bullfighting, aficionados, would describe a bullfight as um, an artistic performance. So it's never the question is never like, will the man uh, not succeed in beating the bull? It's a preordained thing in which the person goes up and faces against a bull and it's really the probably the best way to think about it is it's almost like a dance because the idea is to try and be as beautiful with the bull um 
as you can before the actual death. And it's highly, highly ritualized. That it, each one follows a very kind of set pattern of things, uh, building to this crescendo, which is the eventual death of the bull. And added to that, what makes it so compelling is that, you know, the matador, the people who are in the ring are in very real danger of their lives. Um, and in fact, one of the things that Hemingway wrote about it was why he thought that it was it was one of the only places outside of war where you could witness this direct confrontation with death. Um the idea is is that yeah there are different ways to do it some people can do it in a safer way other people can do it in a less safer way the matadors and if you do it in the most beautiful way possible then once the bull is dead the president of the ring decides whether you are awarded you can be awarded one ear two ears or both ears and the tail of the bull as a caveat to that the reason that this existed was because originally um the bullfight began as a form of um a, a way of like a noble kind of like going into a ring and kind of like performing a hunt in front of uh, a bunch of uh, spectating audience but it's very difficult to actually kill a the the noble would be on a horse and it's very difficult to kill a bull from a horse so there would always need to be somebody like there to effectively finish the bull off but very quickly this became a more like exciting spectacle for the people watching than the noble on the horse the person who used to finish the bull off would always almost be a commoner and if he did a, a very good job, he got the uh, the ear was cut off the bull as like a kind of like a ticket stub, so that he could go and claim the bull's body once the once the whole event was done. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, that's fascinating and really adds a like a dimension because class is a big issue in this as well. Class, sexuality, masculinity, um, and I think this is a great moment to enter Pedro Romero. The 19-year-old up-and-coming star who is Hemingway and Jake's just absolute pinnacle of masculinity. He has affection. He has the passion. He has the attention of one Lady Brett Ashley. <laughs> He's also only 19. He's only 19. Brett, I believe, is 34. They're all in their mid-30s. Mm. Uh, they're younger than us, which don't think about it too hard. When Romero fights the bull and wins the ear, he gives it to Brett. But a lot has happened in the meantime. So every man in this group, except Bill for some reason, like <laughs> super wants Lady Ashley. Oh, that's true. Bill doesn't seem to care about this. Bill's got some side lady called Edna. <laughs> he's just off with Edna and like half the time Jake's like, Where, where's Edna? And he's like, I don't know. You know, I will say briefly, sorry to interrupt, but I think that even though Bill is terrible in all the ways, he seems to be one of the only people who might be more of a genuine friend with Jake because my reading of him not being under her spell was that he he's the one who asks Jake a couple of times, are you still in love with her? And when Jake says terribly, he goes, that's that's terrible. He says something like, you know, that's an awful place to be in. And so I did wonder a little bit if that is actually maybe loyalty to his friend. Something else that I noticed is that Bill was not in the war. Um, he there's a, there's a very brief exchange where Bill talks about seeing some of the violence in the bull ring and says that it, it seemed to last for hours and hours. And Mike says it was only like quarter of an hour. And Bill says, well, you were in the war. So I wonder if, because I think that a lot of... 
the horrible behavior that these people have is directly connected to their experience in the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brett actually says when watching the bullfight, because she she is kind of the stereotypical English woman in that she is worried about the animals and all of this. And, you know, I, I would like to say that Chris described bullfighting really beautifully earlier. I personally have qualms with it that I won't get into here, uh, but just to say that that's not necessarily representative of all views on bullfighting, um, as he very well knows. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and then she's watching it and she's fascinated and she says, it's funny how one doesn't mind about the blood. You know, and this is, I would like to point out as well that Bill is also the only person other than Jake to have an actual job. Yes. Uh, most people in this book do not have jobs. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so Brett and Romero are kind of having this flirtation. He, there's this wonderful scene where he gets her to read his palm and he says, tell me I make a million dollars and live forever. <laughs> <laughs> He's also, he turned Transylvanian there. He is Spanish. <laughs> um, and he falls hard for her. And so Brett keep in mind, is the only woman in a group that includes the love of her life who can't fuck her um, in the way that she wants. Uh, No other way seems to have occurred to either of them. (laughs) Um, Her fiancé, the man she just cheated on her fiancé with, and Bill. (laughs) And she decides that the best thing to do would be to go fuck this meditator. (laughs) And various people get upset. Jake gets upset, uh, you know, he's, but he, he really turns it inward. He goes into a church at one point and prays, although it doesn't mean anything to him anymore. Ah, oh, this generation is so lost. And, uh, Robert gets into a fight with the matador, but Robert was once a middleweight boxing champion of Princeton, as the first sentence will tell you, yeah. and, uh, really does a number on, Romero on the young bullfighter, who is also bound by his own ideas of honor and, uh, you know, will only, you know, will, will only fight in certain ways. And Brett kind of uh, kisses it and makes it better. Yeah. Uh, the two of them then go off together and the men are left sitting alone in Pamplona. And they get drunk. I mean, there's been a lot of drinking. There's been a lot of drinking. And I will say, people who are listening to this for classes, I'm so sorry, (laughs) not a straight line narrative, Um, that some critics do link the increase in drinking to the arrival of Brett. There's nothing to do with it. I tracked it throughout the novel. They're just all drunk all the time. Even in Paris, even with Brett, without Brett, it's it's just drinking. in the third part, everybody kind of scatters because after, first of all, the fiesta is over. But second of all, now that uh, Brett and Romero are gone, uh, the, the three men are sitting around the table and uh, Jake says, you know, the, the three of us sat down and it felt as though about six people were missing mm-hmm. because Brett's been just his focus this whole time. And um, yeah, so Bill decides to go back to Paris. Mike goes off to Bayonne. Jake Goes to San Sebastian like in a really circuitous way. Goes like back into France. It's like you really need a map for that part. Mm-hmm. Um, but while he's in San Sebastian, which is incredible according to his description, and he's you know on the beach, he's having a a good time, kind of. But he's 
he lost the respect of the locals in Spain uh, during the fiesta because he was with this rowdy, self-absorbed, hard-drinking, hard-swearing, fucking everybody. Well, I think it's also the fact is that he's introduced Brett to Romero and the the owner of the hotel who um, Jake is really good friends with because they've both got afición. Um, and he recognises, the owner of the hotel and Jake recognise Romero as this great future of bullfighting. And they see um, that he doesn't want uh, Brett to get caught up with him because he feels that, you know, a, a woman like that would just sort of make him drink loads and lose himself and he would no longer be able to deliver the magic which he's capable of doing. And then... Jake effectively sets Brett up with Romero, uh, and so it's that which has like lost uh, lost his face in in front of this hotel owner, who's the great aficionado. Exactly. So he has a lot of shame. He's lost a lot at this point. He's paying for a shit ton because all these rich people are always fucking broke, <laughs> right. and uh, he is in San Sebastian when he gets like a series of telegrams of identical telegrams from. Brett being like, you know, uh, in Madrid in trouble, come help me. And so he drops everything and goes to Madrid. And she they've they've, they've broken up. Romero wanted to marry her and have her hair grow her hair long. There was just like fundamental cultural age everything differences between these two once they'd fucked it out there was nothing left to say other than you think you could grow your hair long before you meet my parents and she was like oh honey (laughs) but she's like i don't have any money like what am i you know and i need jake to come kind of soothe me she always Mm -hmm. uses him a little bit like a teddy bear um and uh yeah and so jake is ready to pay but it turns out romero's already paid the bill before he you know fucked back to before he went back to Pamplona. And uh, Jake is like, well, you know, do you want to just take a ride around? Because that's what they do, this group. They just kind of, you know... uh, It's one of the things which they enjoy doing is just, like, driving around a city or having a look at stuff. Rather being driven around (laughs) by locals. Um, And so they're driving around and... Uh, Brett says a phrase that comes up in different permutations and versions over the course of the novel. Oh, Jake, we could have had such a damn good time together. And he says, isn't it pretty to think so? So he's really, finally at the end, he's lost everything from money to reputation. And he just hits this loss of of hopeyman or of imagination. Um, so that's that's the plot. Yeah, and I read this book and I was like, oh, I want that life. We'll always have Paris. We'll be right back with more of the love story. We'll always have Paris is brought to you by Lingoda. Chris, can I ask you, do you remember where and how the gorgeous Miles Davis and Julia Greco met when, in Paris. Yeah, in a jazz club, like after he'd played and she came up to talk to him after he'd played. Exactly. And they met, they fell madly in love. But do you remember, Rachel, what one of the major obstacles of their initial budding romance was? They didn't speak each other's languages. Famously never did. And while they did get better as the relationship slash friendship went on, you know, it really was their passion, their devotion to each other that kind of got them over that hump. 
Now imagine you or I, mere mortals, in amongst Paris. It's really wonderful to meet someone and fall madly in love right away, but sometimes you need a little bit of language, right? You need to have the hello, the goodbye, the, oh, what do you do? And yeah, if you can't play the trumpet like Miles Davis, then listen. definitely. <laughs> and if you don't have friends like Sartre and Boris Vian, et cetera, et cetera, all around you, your own words are going to need to be the advocates, baby. <laughs> and for that, we have a solution. Uh, Lingoda is an online language school that will teach you how to speak great French really quickly. Lingoda's classes are live online, 60-minute courses on a selection of topics, and you get to pick the topic that you're going to study on any given day from their selection. They teach French up to level B2, which is pretty darn high, and you can take these courses at your choice of time. They're available pretty much 24-7. Group courses have a maximum of five students, but you also have a one-on-one -on -one option. Either way, you're working with native-level teachers to have conversations in a really natural way. Lingoda's platform also gives you the option to continue your learning on your own with optional online exercises. So get your seduction language ready. We're thrilled to be able to offer our listeners a seven-day free trial at Lingoda. During that time, you can take three group classes or one one-on-one -on -one class. Then when you sign up for more classes, a package of 5, 12, 20, 40 classes uh, in a month of either kind, you can get 30% off your first payment with the code HAVEPARIS30. Just go to lingoda.com, use the code HAVEPARIS30 to begin polishing up your French just in case you do happen to meet that special someone during your summer trip abroad. This was, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Romana Clef. Romana Clef? Romana I've only well, seen it written. I've never said it out loud. Do you know, Chris? I don't know. Romana Clef sounds right. Mm. Yeah, because you don't say, like, don't wear a clef. Like, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> that was a French joke. That's such a funny thing where you could speak French fluently. <laughs> For all of you high schoolers listening who are taking English literature, American literature, and French this semester, that was a bonus for you. Um, now, Jake Barnes was named Hem in the early drafts of this. And uh, let's see, Bill? Uh, Bill Gordon was actually based on Donald Stewart, who was a screenwriter. Um, and he said he was astonished when he saw that Hemingway had published this as fiction because he wrote that it was nothing but a report on what happened. It was journalism. Wow. Is, is, oh, my God. Right. So let's let's establish some of the real life figures here. And uh, then talk about the actual incident. Because, of course, Hemingway was not a, a woman. Um, he, he wasn't a woman either. He wasn't a woman. Um, Hemingway was not a man who couldn't have sex. He had four wives and three children. Um, and he was married at this time to Hadley, wonderful Hadley. So Robert was based on Harold Loeb, who was a romantic rival of Hemingway's. His mother was a Guggenheim. So when Hemingway writes that through his mother, he was one, part of one of the oldest families in New York, he was not lying. Uh, he was part owner of a New York bookstore. He started the magazine Broom, where they published Dos Passos, E. Cummings. 
He had written uh, two novels by the time this came out. The first one was called Dudav. 1925. And the second would have come out around the same time. It was called The Professors Like Vodka, 1927. Um, and after he moved back to New York, he continued writing. His third novel was called Tumbling Mustard. These novels sound terrible, but it does really make all of Jake's jabs at how Cohen is so unsuccessful as a writer seem that much more cruel. Yeah, but also valid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, you're going to have to forgive me for my pronunciation of this. Brett Ashley is by far the best name that this lady could have been memorialized <laughs> with because her real name was Lady Duff Twisden or Twisden. I think it's Twisden, like Twinnings. T is is the T called Twinnings? The T of what? The T. The oh, the T. Yeah, the T. Yeah. yeah. So let's say Lady Duff Twisden, but her full name was Mary Duff Sterling Smirthwaite, Lady Twisden. What? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, she hated this book. She, <laughs> oh, I wonder why. <laughs> referred to the time before it as B BS, before sun, and the time after it as AS. Um, wow. Good one, Mirthwaite. <laughs> yeah. She was, uh, yeah, known for everything Brett Ashley's known for, uh, you know, the style, the kind of, uh, hard drinking, hard partying. The representation of the book is definitely a caricature and, <laughs> As Hemingway would later refer to, it says her. I don't know if that's uh, the actual person or Lady Brett Ashley, but he did call her an alcoholic nymphomaniac. And so she had to live with that for the rest of her life. Um, but happily... It sounds like a great kind of woman. Like, <laughs> what more do you want? Um, she moved to America. She married the artist Clinton King. Um, unfortunately, she died in Santa Fe of tuberculosis at 47. So she did have an affair with Harold Loeb, uh, and he wrote about it. And I think we can really compare kind of the relative talents of different writers in this group when you hear how he described the first time he saw her. So this is the Robert Cohen character of Harold Loeb. I heard a laugh so gay and musical that it seemed to brighten the dingy room. Low-pitched, it had the liquid quality of the lit lilt of a mockingbird singing to the moon. Deserved everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying, trying so hard. Trying so hard. Remove all the anti-Semitism, of course, but all the things about his writing. And how yeah. that, yeah. No, valid. <laughs> now, Hemingway definitely had a crush. And remember, he's like mid-20s at this point. This is He's 25. This is peak Hemingway being hot. Yeah. Uh, oh, peak Hemingway hotness. The author Leslie M.M. Bloom, who wrote a wonderful book called Everyone Behaves Badly. I want to read that. It's really good about the, the what actually happened. Wrote that sometimes Hadley joined in the, the excursions with Lady Duff, but she, they, quote, they were not happy outings for her. She often burst into tears and Hemingwood would prevail upon McAlman or their friend Josephine Brooks to take his wife home while he stayed out drinking with Lady Duff. Yeah, so that's a little that's a little rough. It's a little rough. So they're all planning this trip to Pamplona together because uh, Gertrude Stein has introduced Hemingway to the Bulls, <laughs> and Duff has slept with Loeb. They're no longer having an affair. Hemingway has a crush on her, mm -hmm. but there's also her not fiance but 
longtime lover, uh, Patrick Guthrie, coming in from Scotland. And so beforehand, she wrote to Duff, Duff wrote to Loeb, I expect I shall have a bit of a time managing the situation. Hem has promised to be good, and we ought to have a really marvelous time. But why did he promise have to promise to be good? Were they already sleeping together? We don't know. Now, here's the other thing, is that Loeb wrote later on that, you know, the Robert character goes off to pick up Mike and Brett at the train station. Real Same thing happens in real life. But when uh, Lady Duff gets off the train, she's wearing a beret. <gasps> she never wears a beret. Only Hemingway wears berets. <laughs> and Loeb just knew. <laughs> like Taylor Swift is barely walking. You can see the level of Easter eggs that are happening on this trip. Yeah. I would like to say that the one person with a happy ending and well, Bill the screenwriter turned out fine. Um I don't know what happened to Patrick Patrick Guthrie. Romero was based on uh, just an actual bullfighter that Hemingway loved. I don't know that there was, I don't, they were all way too busy for Lady Duff was like, how, who has the time? (laughs) I I do more in real life than just going around fucking (laughs) groups of friends and their, you know, matadors. Um, So this was based on Cayetano Ordonez, who began a bullfighting dynasty he uh, actually, his son, Antonio, was the topic of the later Hemingway book, The Dangerous Summer. And his great grandsons are still matadors today. That's amazing. Yeah. So let's all give it up for Odonias. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Romero can get it. <laughs> Legacy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this book didn't come like fully birthed into the world as this, uh, you know, this mirror of this actual trip. Hemingway had other ideas about how to make it more of a novel. They were just bad ideas. (laughs) So uh, he workshopped with Fitzgerald, who said, you know, well, there's some problems in the 30 pages, and here's what I do to fix them. And Hemingway did what I would do and just started the book 30 pages later. (laughs) (laughs) Correct move, Hemingway. Um, He actually wrote later like within the book in an earlier draft of it as jake barnes i did not want to tell the story in the first person but i find that i must i wanted to say well outside of the story so i would not be touched by it in any way and handle all the people in it with that irony and pity that are so essential to good writing so that phrase irony and pity comes into the book uh but other than that that framing of jake writing the story really disappears uh there's also (laughs) In his earlier drafts, uh, which were, you know, uh, which have been much studied at this point, but uh, after writing about uh, a washed up bullfighter in the in the book, he, he had a section that said, well, none of this has anything to do with the story, and I suppose you think there isn't any story anyway, but it sort of moves along in time. And anyway, there's a lot of dope about high society in it, and that is always interesting. So I am loving this. <laughs> Again, this is how you sell a book. <laughs> so Chris is absolutely right that the high society, uh, Hemingway knew what he was doing. He was like, these are not professors <laughs> going off along. <laughs> these are fancy people. So it came out to pretty mixed reviews, although the sales were good. And looking at the sales numbers, uh, I feel pretty great um, <laughs> because for what was considered good back then. Uh, in 1926, New York Times published its uh, review of 
The sun also rises under the title Marital Tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's their way of saying his penis was hurt. (laughs) Um, And they, they started out with the comparison... Mr. Hemingway writes a most admirable dialogue. It has the tense vigor of Ring Lardner at his best. Now, Ring Lardner was a humor and sports writer. uh, And he actually was somebody that Hemingway in high school had imitated. And this is some of only Hemingway's only surviving juvenilia because it was printed in the the school paper. The rest was later lost. Um, It was a rigging endorsement, but it was also even-handed. So they called it, you know, an event, and they were excited. But they said on the face of it, he simply gathered, almost at random, a group of American and British expatriates from Paris, conducted them on a fishing expedition, and exhibited them against the background of a wild Spanish fiesta and bullfight. Um, But they do really understand what he's trying to do. At the same time, Mr. Hemingway makes his character say one thing, convey still another. And when a whole passage of talk has been given, the reader finds himself the richer by a totally unexpected mood, a mood often enough of outrageous familiarity with obscure heartbreaks. And for me, that's why no great movie has ever been made of this. Mm -hmm. It's unadaptable unless uh, you really focus just on vibes. As the huge success uh, on the market that it was, it sold 19,000 copies within the first six months of its publication. It's a good number, like today, but it's not, you know. At that time, it's huge. At the time, it's huge. But also, they didn't have movies or TV yet, so the the market was bigger percentage-wise. It Don't make me do math. Um, but by the time of Hemingway's death in 61, an estimated 1 million copies had been mm-hmm. sold. And they estimate that worldwide, sorry, Scribner III estimates that worldwide 300,000 copies are sold every year uh, still uh, today. To schools alone, there's so many. Yeah, I was going to say in Shakespeare and Company alone. Yeah. <laughs> it's 250,000 here. <laughs> So uh, let's talk about Brett and Jake. What, let's talk about them separately, then together. What do we think about Brett, other than the fact that she reminds me of you, reminds you of me, and I always wanted to be her. And also, after the publication of this book, there were a lot of like Brett Ashley imitations, like sitting around cafes, uh, coming like, <laughs> like on college break. <laughs> no, my my impression of her, my impression of her filtered through the writing is that. She's written as she often says, I just can't help myself or some variation on that thing. You know me, Jake. I just can't help myself. And so she seems to me like a character who has both a ton of influence in that, you know, all of these men who are not Bill are obsessed with her and they fall under her sway immediately and they stay there. But also that she's kind of bedeviled by these forces or by these impulses that she has no control over whatsoever. Um, And it's interesting to me also how her drinking is depicted. As Rachel, as we've all been saying, everyone drinks so fucking much. Yeah. So much. As an example, like a, a moderate example, Jake and Brett have dinner at one point and he orders to begin with two bottles of wine. Yes. Yes, I remember two bottles. I was telling with uh, dinner. Exactly. This is this book has brought me the closest to true sobriety. That I, I mean, I'm drinking wine now, but for <laughs> for a good hour, I did think to myself, maybe no more wine ever in my life. Uh, really, it has the opposite effect on me. I think, oh, I'm basically sober. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. um, that's, that's a problem. Exactly. Yeah. So they're all 
all hard drinkers, right? And it's obviously really fucking them up. But Brett's drinking is written in such a way, her hand, by the end, her hand is always trembling before she gets her first drink. We're clearly supposed to understand that she's having a problem and everyone else is living, right? Like everyone else is just, that's how they deal with life seems to be the the code, which might be also why there is that mistaken assumption sometimes in good faith, sometimes in bad faith, that everyone's drinking increases when Brett's introduced into the narrative. Well, I, I mean, I, so I think there are a few things. First of all, I think that um, Brett is, for me, easily the most interesting character in the book. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you really see how he started off thinking that it was a book about her. Because yes. I think it ends up as a book about her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to, to a degree. I mean, I suppose, so, and I think, one of the interesting things that obviously the shadow which falls over the entire book is that of the First World War. And as well as Cohn's Jewishness, I feel that one of the reasons why all of the characters hate him so much is because he wasn't in the war. I feel that like that's baked into that. Um, it's true that also Bill wasn't in the war, apparently. Um, but I think what's interesting is how uh, Lady Brett Ashley has sort of somehow has been in the war almost by proxy. Like she's considered, although she's never seen any action or anything like that, she's there on the front line of dealing with the fallout in terms of the men who have all been to war. And I think she nursed. She was also a nurse, though. Oh, she was a nurse in the yeah. war. Okay. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to bracket, just quickly return to what we were saying about Bill mm-hmm. earlier, which is that he is a newspaper man. So my understanding was that he could have been a correspondent during the war, which for Hemingway wouldn't be as good as fighting, but it would be like an acceptable, you know, way of engaging with things. You know, the only unacceptable thing would be to get out of it like Robert Cohen did. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I think I think that makes her... Uh, you know, just it's it's fascinating as to kind of like the the role that the war has played in her life. It's interesting if I, I obviously missed the part where uh, I read that it says that she's a nurse or was a nurse in the war. Well, it doesn't feel like she's ever had a job. So, yeah, <laughs> that's understandable. Yeah, you'd be forgiven for forgetting that. <laughs> I do believe that she is in love with Jake, but then I think she's in love with like all these men who kind of like cross her path. She's, she falls in love with them. However, briefly, and maybe you could argue sees them as, sees them as conquests or something along those lines. And the reason why her relationship with Jake sustains is, and he even says this himself. I think she only wants him so much because she can't have him because of this wound that stops him from being able to have sex. And and so he, yeah, he's like this sort of like safe figure for her, um, but also this perpetual want that she has and also um just to add on to that too she i think she also responds to jake the way that she does because he silent he always expresses his love for her so he never plays coy but he doesn't put demands on her and so he's it's a nice i think for i think there's a way where it's nice to have the reminder of being loved but without having to deal with any of the negative consequences of it because no matter how badly he's feeling he will always as you were saying Rachel he'll always push that down to the bottom of himself right he's never going to do he's never going to follow her like Cohen does he's never going to be horrible in public like Mike is going has been throughout the book it's it, he's also just calmer compared to the others. I think as well, though, that the, one of the reasons for Hemingway that this relationship was always going to be doomed, other than that's what makes the book, <laughs> is that he is a little bit 
under her sway. Mm -hmm. So even the, the fact that by the end you can separate out from that, like that is almost a win and, and say, you know, I don't think actually we would have been great together because the idea is that it's almost like this um, – He's almost like her, you know, as I said, teddy bear, like sexless buddy who like will she'll make out with. But, you know, and then he, he pays for things. She stands him up on dates. She brings her other lovers around to see him. She, you know, gets him to almost, you know, set her up with Romero, you know, who she's had her eye on, you know, and. Um, also, yeah, it never occurs to anybody, not just Jake, that oral sex is a possibility, nope. um, that other ways of doing things can happen. So It wasn't invented until 1968. I right. That That is important. It, I just want to make sure important. for my school students listening in, remember to put that in your essay. Right. Yeah. You can, you can cite us. You can cite us oh, on please that. please do. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Jake, on the other hand, is, I think, supposed to be this everyman type. And, you know, he's he's been in the war. He's got really fixed ideas about masculinity, courage, bravery. Uh, again, Romero is kind of the pinnacle of that. He feels that he's failed in a lot of these ways. The fact that Brett won't be with him due to this wound has, you know, this, uh, this effect of, I think, just constantly emphasizing for him how much of his masculinity he feels that he has lost. So what do we think about Jake? Um, I I want to we I know we'll talk about this more expansively, but just on your last point, I also think that Brett is convenient. We've talked a bit about what Jake does for Brett, but I think that having this unrequited love because of circumstances for Jake means that all of the other emotions that he's clearly feeling can be focused in on her and be can be caused by her. So why am I sad? Why do I drink too much? It's because I'm in love, and I think that there's something. There's so, it's almost like he's outsourcing painful emotions and putting them on her, and that's nice for him. It's nice to have a you know a a cogent, concrete reason why I am feeling bad. And if this was fixed, then I'd feel good. But it can't be fixed, and thus I must feel bad. Well, yeah, okay. So I want to to build off that. I think, and I think this is why it resonates with a lot of people in some ways. Is that essentially, weirdly, it's a, it's a book about the pursuit of pleasure. Um, and there is a huge amount, e even though it's done to massive excess, there is a huge amount of pleasure in the book, as I said, about the, you know, the drinking, but also the eating and the holidays that they're going on and all of these lovely... Where it's painful. <laughs> during the during the fiesta stuff, I was just, I was also tired, but I was just going, oh my God, this, I would be so tired. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I mean, yeah, but it, it's the pursuit of the all of these other pleasures. And yet, I suppose that fundamentally and I, I not talking about sex necessarily here but that pleasure of a kind of like a sexual connection or a connection with another person is ultimately uh denied to him so i think that yeah he he operates in in this regard so not being able to have brett ashley is the sort of like the general wound from the war which is that everything is tainted or that the, the that you can enjoy these passing transient pleasures, but this notion of like peace of mind is forever gone to you or that a pleasure, which is wholesome and true. And I think that really hit home to me actually in the scenes after the fiesta, when he's on his own in Seba San Sebastian and he's, ha he's describing having just a lovely time really. But underneath that lovely time, you just, you still get this emptiness and this sense of want. 
and which you don't get actually in the kind of like in the the spin and the kind of the twirl of Paris or in the twirl of um, you know the fiesta itself. But when he's on his own trying to enjoy these things, there's something that kind of rings hollow about them. And then he leaps the moment that he gets this telegram from Brett Ashley. He leaps to go and see her, and then realizes no that this wholesome quality of of, of happiness of pleasure is still denied to him this this stands for all of the characters in the book though is that and you know he just happens to be like and and this is kind of why it's not just autofiction or not just a, a diary because he's in, inserted this device the uh, impotence which you know means that like gives him a kind of a concrete reason why he is uh, actually how all of the other characters are in a sort of abstract way. They're all pursuing something which they can't have, but he can sort of see the thing that he can't have. There's a, I, I think the, the core, the crux of the book for me is at one point the the Greek-American count says, Mr. Barnes, I do not want to know, you know, anything about wine. All I want to do is just experience it. Yeah. And that's echoed later in the book when Jake says, I didn't, you know, I didn't care anything about, I, I didn't care what it was all about. All I wanted to know was how to live in it. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to find just these heightened experiences and it just the absolute pinnacle of what the world has to offer, you know, for him and his friends and his generation and what's left. And uh, it's, it's, uh, I began with a slightly tongue in cheek quote, but I do want to wrap up with a separate quote, which is actually from Fitzgerald in a letter he wrote to his friend uh, Edmund Wilson, who was also a writer, but also an editor, an important editor, uh, with whom he was at Princeton and also part of this Lost Generation set. He called him Bunny. <laughs> but uh, within this letter he wrote, it was fun when we all believed the same things. It was more fun to think that we were all going to die together or live together, and none of us anticipated this great loneliness. Okay, I. That's devastating. That is yeah. de so. That's Fitzgerald. Too. That's Fitzgerald. I think in the fifties. Okay. Uh, writing about this time period, and I think that this is the vibe of the sun also rises. Is that there? The great loneliness is there already, but nobody understands what's happening. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Marry, Fuck, Kill. Now, we're going to apply the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main story, as always. But there's a twist this time, because Lady Brett Ashley does not limit herself. We are going to marry, fuck, and kill four wow. men. Everybody Lady Ashley loves or fucks in the book is on the table. So, as a refresher, this is Jake Barnes, Pedro Romero, Robert Cohen, Mike, the really mean Scottish guy. The only rule is that you can only marry one person. You do have to uh, double up only on the fuck or kill categories, as would Lady Brett. So... Uh I, I actually revision. I'll allow marriage. I'll, I'll allow multiple marriages, but you have to tell me in what order, and there has to be a reason why. Ooh, this is great. 
Yeah, thank you. I thought it was too easy just to pick three of the men. I was like, no, it's got to be all four. You're absolutely right. And yeah, we're, we're, this is a book about excess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the kills is really easy for me. Yeah, that we all know. And one of the fucks is real easy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I'm still thinking, Chris, do you have a list? Well, all right. I mean, let's say we're, I'm definitely going to be killing uh, Mike because he is a fucking asshole. <laughs> He's the absolute worst. And Brett Ashley does say at one point, oh, I might as well go back to Mike after the Romero thing. She says, he's so uh, he's so wonderful and he's so horrible. He's just my kind of thing. And it's like, way to be self-aware. Yes. <laughs> um, in terms of marrying, I think I would, I'm inclined to marry Jake. He seems like a, a steady, steady guy. Um, and think how excited he's going to be when you teach him about oral sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he seems he seems pretty steady. I'm I'm, I'm happy. In my relationship with Jake, I'm gonna um, obviously fuck Romero. Um, I mean, although that being said, I mean he's only he's only 19, but um, he's probably well at this point he's technically 119. So <laughs> actually, you know, the cradle robbing goes the other way. So you can feel fine about that. Okay. Um, so so that's easy. Now Robert Cohn. Like he's this is an interesting an interesting person. He definitely will cry after sex. That's yeah. not good or bad, but it's going to happen. Now, I think kind of all this, I mean, m- maybe, and you can disagree with me here, but like I is it possible to leave the anti-Semitism aside? Right, because you're you. You're not having no, no, I know. I, I, but I mean, it's... you don't have to be anti-Semitic, Chris. No, we, ne- we never said that. <laughs> I want to make it clear: we never said that anyone had to be anti-Semitic to be in this podcast. No, in fact, rather the opposite. We, I think, it was very really clear. So yeah, don't worry about that, Chris. I mean, in, I, I, I do mean in terms of interpreting the character, and actually, while I understand that there is this like rich theme of anti-Semitism, which is basically the reason why people don't like him, I also quite like the idea of this because you do come across them in real life of people who fundamentally there's nothing wrong with them like they're they see they seem to be nice they seem to do everything kind of right and everything like that and you can't quite put your finger on what it is that is like wrong with the, off about them and i do feel as i say anti-semitism aside that robert cohn has that quality oh, yeah, um, that there's there's just something about him which is a bit I imagine him as always being slightly clammy. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I don't know if that's uh, partly just the disgust that Hemingway has for him, you know? Yeah, I think it's just always that that gentle exertion that he's always putting forward. And He's thirsty. He's thirsty. That's it. People who who try too hard or where their thirst is too evident, it may be a bad sign on my part, but it is off-putting. It just annoys me, and I have to kind of get past that initial irritation. So all this said, like <laughs> you know, while he probably uh, isn't a isn't a great person really to be around, I think everybody he's still a human being who is suffering and struggling with with life, and so um, <laughs> I guess like, I want to call it a pity fuck. We can call it that. But I'm cu- I, I would be curious. In fact, if anything, we don't have to. We don't actually have to have sex. But like, I'd like to, you know, hang out with Robert Cohn and just kind of get to know him a little bit, a little bit better, and really understand what makes Robert Cohn tick. And if the way I had to do that was by having sex with him, then so be it. So <laughs> I feel like that's heroic. Heroic. 
I feel like what you're really saying is I'd like to be Robert Cohen's therapist for a while. <laughs> like, this would be a new version of this game, Mary Fuck Kill Therapy. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, the answer is always therapy and it's not a game. Exactly. <laughs> Which is why they took it out of the original. Right, exactly. <laughs> So I'm going to do a slight twist on this, giving enough more time to think. Twist on a twist. Twist on a twist, because I've had time to think about it. Um, and this will open up options for Naf, which I don't know, for a Gemini, that might be just disturbing. I might have, to, I might just become a pool of yabs. Here's what we do. What I do. I marry Robert Cohn first. I think we're going to have to Because okay. yep. he's got the money. There we go. He's yep. the only one with the money. Then I kill him. There we go. Perfect. And I marry Jake Barnes. Yes. And I teach him oral sex. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's uh, th- there. We go. We have all of his money. Yes. We can. You know, he can quit. You know, doing his two hours a day at the journalism office, which I guess is enough to make him. You know, able to travel around the continent. You know, uh, happily. And uh, we move to the country. So that's the that's my Mary and a kill. Um, I'm going to fuck Romero, mm-hmm. um, immediately, and then maybe in a group sex scenario with Jake okay. later on. You are playing fast and loose <laughs> with this game. It's my game. <laughs> um, yeah, so he's definitely, but he's, he's solidly fuck category. Jake would probably quite like that, I think. The the se- group sex scenario with Romero, he might just be watching and like writing down what he sees. But... Oh, That's wow. okay, but I want him in there, you know, doing his thing. The things that I've taught him, the things that Romero's teaching him. <laughs> and um, yeah, Mike, kill him, raise him from the dead, murder him again. Um <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, peel his skin off? No, too much to cut that out. 18 of my kills are Mike. <laughs> Mike is the absolute worst. I don't think we got through the discussion of how absolutely terrible he is. He is the meanest person to everyone on the planet. Okay. He's supposedly fine with Brett going off and sleeping with other people, but then is all snipey and mean to her and the other people. Uh, he's somehow both passive-aggressive and aggressive-aggressive. Yeah, he borrows money from everybody. He's a bankrupt. Uh, which, you know, again, on its own, I'm not great with money. Like, I understand, Mike, but also you're not giving me any redeeming qualities mm-hmm. like that with, you know, Robert, I feel like easy to seduce, lots of money, right? Those two qualities alone, perfect first husband. You know, Mike, I've I've got nothing except a Scottish accent. So maybe I fuck him and then I kill him, but I think yeah. mostly I just kill him. That's a very small defense of Mike. And I, I, like, I do think that he is the person who is, I mean, apart from Jake, literally, but like the most scarred from the war. Like, I think he's really struggling with some uh, post-traumatic depression there. I think that's absolutely right to like, to be totally, yeah, honest. Uh, and, but that's also something that would be very hard to deal with on a daily basis. Oh yeah. And it seems to prevent him from feeling any sort of empathy for anybody else. And I think that disqualifies him in this particular instance of the way that he's processed that and processing that. So my structure is very similar to Rachel's and I promise I wasn't just copying. I really was thinking this. So I will first marry Cohen, get the money, get that Guggenheim cash. We'll we'll split it. Perfect. There, I'm sure there's enough. And I didn't think about killing him myself. What I was kind of hoping to do was transition into fucking Pedro, 
very hot, wonderful. And then having him somehow kill Cohen for me. Oh, he would. And, and hosting it as kind of like, you know, for my honor. Oh, he'd totally do that. I think he's pretty close to doing that in the book, actually. You could also just give him mushrooms and convince him that Cohen was a bull. <laughs> way more entertaining for me honestly so yeah so that's the right. new plan and there's your screenplay <laughs> in the meantime i'm cultivating a deep honest and true friendship with jake barnes who will be my second husband so after you know cohen has been dealt with i'm grief stricken of course and then pedro leaves because i will have to make him leave because there's simply no way that i'm going to keep fucking a really hot but kind of dummy dumb bullfighter for more than but it'd also be so easy to break up with him you just go but that was a mortal sin how can i stay exactly. with somebody who was and he goes but i committed it for you and you say well that is the fatal flaw i gotta say as well pedro uh pedro pedro romero is yeah he's like he's i would say like Every British kid's nightmare in some ways. He's he's the person who you arrive on holiday and there's this like incredibly smooth uh, like Spanish guy. Oh yes, I fight bulls. <laughs> no, I'm and, 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 you're like, <laughs> and you're like, do you want to play Quidditch? <laughs> That's a Harry Potter sport. <laughs> he's so good looking and he doesn't even have the decency to be an arsehole. He's like incredibly noble and you're just oh God, this guy's perfect. Like, obviously, like everybody's going to be just on their knees in front of him. So to speak. Red <laughs> Ashley certainly yeah, was. <laughs> in the meantime, I've been cultivating a best friendship with Jake. Obviously, smoldering feelings have been happening. And then after these two, I go to Jake and I confess to him my feelings. And he goes, I've been feeling the same way. And I go, do you know what oral sex is? And he goes, no. And then... I show him and he's like the most delighted. And then we get married. <laughs> he's a journalist. So like it, you could assume that he would understand at least the concept just from the phrase. And actually he might <laughs> he might transition into a career where he becomes like kind of amazingly a sex therapist for war veterans. Like he's able to really like explain to them. I love that for him. Yeah. So I think that I can yeah. actually help Jake transition to a better career for him. And then I would be the writer star of our relationship. Yeah. Um, and then Mike, I will kill 16 ways to the wind. I don't care about like I I totally yeah. understand that he's PTSD. You're a fucking asshole. Goodbye. Yeah.